Hello and welcome to 10 by 9 where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Dorn and this is the 10 by 9 podcast. I'm going to start with a small apology stroke excuse. I have a bit of a head cold which seems to have robbed me temporarily I hope of hearing in one ear. So if the levels on this podcast aren't up to scratch, it's because there's a bit of guesswork going on. But there are three amazing stories on here, told at our November event in the black box when the theme was sick. Now I know I'm a man that doesn't enjoy being in a queue or having to wait, but I have a few techniques to stop myself from getting annoyed. I make a mental list of all the things that I am grateful for. 15 seconds later, I am peering intently... (laughs) And she says, would you look at the size of the arse in him? <laughs> and the true professional that he was, and he knows how dementia affects people, he just looked around at me and he winked and smiled and went on about his work. She never really forgot those original generic questions. Ask about family, not about individuals. Ask about work, not about jobs. No specifics. So brace yourselves for stories on the frailty of life, told in the way only 10 by 9 storytellers can do, with humour. And humanity. And first up, with a beautiful day out to John Patrick, is Paul Whittington and a procedure that some men regard with dread. Right, Mr. Whittington, drop your trousers and pants, hop on the table, lie on your side, and bring your knees up towards your chest. <laughs> the doctor said, turning away towards his desk, he opened a drawer, grabbed a pair of latex gloves, snapped on a pair, and advanced towards me, smiling. Ah, Mr. Whittington, could you turn and face the wall? Oh, sorry, doctor, I lamely replied. Excellent. What I'm going to do is insert my finger up your back passage to check on the size of your prostate. How I ended up in this awkward situation was because of a previous visit when I was expressing my concern at the number of visits to the toilet I was making during the night. As many as five times a night, you say, the doctor said, lifting his eyes from the page he was writing notes. Yeah, well, some nights not so many, I replied defensively, my voice trailing off. He nodded, then glancing at his notes, hmm, I think we'll do a blood test to check your levels of PSA. He turned towards his computer, opened up a new page, peered at the screen. Would this Friday at 9.40 suit you? He glanced up at me. I nodded. Don't worry, we'll give you a ring next week with the results. Thank you, doctor, I said as I vacated the room. The following Friday morning, I was sitting in the crowded waiting room waiting for my name to flash up on the laser display screen. 9.40 came and went. Now, I know I'm a man that doesn't enjoy being in a queue or having to wait, but I have a few techniques to stop myself from getting annoyed. I make a mental list of all the things that I am grateful for. Fifteen seconds later, I am peering intently (laughs) at the display screen, willing my name to appear. At this point, I wish to say that I am a very lucky man and I have plenty to be thankful for and perhaps I should meditate on each one. Glancing round, I noticed the waiting room had a toilet. 9.50 had come, 10 o'clock had gone. When you see there's a toilet, I had been for a pee before I left the house, but at my age, if you start thinking about it, you start to imagine you should use the opportunity and go now. So off to the loo, and as I close the door, the display screen pings, but I am committed. A quick but effective washing of my hands, I return to see my name flashing. 
Paul Whittington to the treatment room. The nurse gives me a cheery smile. This nurse is a happy one and says in a jovial manner, don't worry, this is going to hurt you more than me. She chuckles <laughs> as she extracts the required amount of blood from me as I look away. Placing the vials of blood in the official bag with the appropriate labels, she bade me farewell, informing me that someone would let me know the result. The phone call from the nurse the following week informed me that I had elevated levels of PSA. The doctor would like to see me. And here I am lying on my side with my backside exposed and the doctor approaching me with gloved hand. I wonder if this is how a turkey feels at Christmas <laughs> as he's about to be stuffed with all types of tasty morsels. A silly comparison is turkey's already dead and I'm definitely still here. I obviously tensed, but a reassuring pat on my side, the doctor said, try and relax, it'll make it easier on both of us. <laughs> Obviously, he sensed that I was not relaxed enough, so he used the old distraction technique. Are you following the football? <laughs> yes, doctor, I'm a big football fan. What team? He inquired. Man United, what about you? I replied, Liverpool. Oh, Liverpool, you say? I suppose that doesn't make you a bad person, I said in a jovial sort of banter way. Total silence. Ooh. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Typical Liverpool sneaking up from behind. <laughs> Thankfully, the procedure was brief, uncomfortable, but not painful. Okay, you can get up and get dressed. Once dressed and sitting in a seat beside the doctor's desk, he paused and gave me the news. Your prostrate is slightly enlarged, which is not unusual for a man of your age. It is smooth, no rough patches, that's good. However, I think given what you have told me, we should check your bile. I am referring you for a colonoscopy. Any questions? A pause. Not wanting to appear completely ignorant, I said nothing. Good, you'll receive a letter in due course telling you what to do. He looked at my face and decided that I had no idea what was happening. So he told me in great detail what would happen in the colonoscopy. I left the surgery with a lot of new knowledge, a sense of foreboding, and collected my dignity at the door. The letter arrived, giving me the date of the procedure and instructions what I should eat 48 hours before, also not to eat anything on the day before, but to drink some laxatives at different times during the day. On the day of the big event, I took the laxatives movie prep. Heeding the advice of the letter, I sat on the stairs for several hours outside the main bathroom. Anyone who dared to enter was politely but infirmly told to use the upstairs bathroom. It took several hours before it happened. The most unpleasant experience I have ever had, one I have no desire to repeat. The laxatives did their job. I can't remember how many times I rushed to the loo. It also left me nervous about leaving the house, so I didn't. <laughs> Next day, I persuaded my wife, Linda, to accompany me. I sold, I sold the idea as a day out in Downpatrick. <laughs> I was sitting in the passenger seat, which was covered with a large Tesco bag. <laughs> just in case. I really didn't think there was any danger, as there was surely nothing left inside me after yesterday. As expected, no emergency stops were needed, and upon arrival at the impressive hospital, Linda left me in the capable hands of the staff. I walked into the operating theatre and settled myself on the table. The assembled mass team confirmed with me whether I wanted a general anaesthetic or a local one. The anaesthetist explained the difference between them. 
as I wanted to experience nothing of the procedure, I opted to be knocked out. The mass team explained what would happen, but as I opted for complete oblivion, I paid no attention. I've only discovered lately that air is pumped up your back passage to inflate the empty bowel. This allows the camera to investigate the organ clearly. This would explain the rather large bicycle pump equipment beside the surgical tray. I was having the most pleasant and deepest of sleep when someone was calling my name and gently shaking my, my shoulder, saying it was time to wake up. No, leave me alone. I just want to sleep. It is so peaceful, apparently, I replied. However, the nurses in the recovery room were having none of this, so I was gently coaxed back to this hard, cruel world and made to sit up, thus not allowing me to slip back into the bliss of sleep. As I was rising to the surface from the depths of sleep, I heard the nurses talking about me. They seemed to think I suffered from sleep apnea. In a moment of rashness, I relayed this information to Linda on the journey home. This proved a very unwise move as a result in opening another can of worms. Linda collected me, and because I had, I had opted for the complete oblivion, I was not allowed to drive. I was still sitting on the Tasco bag for life. As we passed through Crossgar, Linda asked me if I wanted a bite to eat, as it was lunchtime. I was reluctant, but as I had nothing to eat for 24 hours, I eventually was persuaded. We entered a cafe after ensuring it had functioning toilets. The Tesco bag for life stayed in the car. On that sunny day, I saw little of the historic delights of Downpatrick, did not walk in the footsteps of our patron saint, nor visit the impressive Down Cathedral. However, I did have such a wonderful sleep and lost some weight. Not bad for a day out. Thanks so much, Paul. Glad to hear everything is okay back there. Brilliant. We're always looking for new storytellers at 10 by 9 so if you'd like to tell your story but are a little nervous or shy, then get in touch at the 10 by 9 website and I'll do my best to make it happen for you. Let's get on to our second story, and 10 by 9 isn't exactly a multimedia event, though we do include photos occasionally with the stories. This time, there's a short video which I'll put on our social media feeds for you to watch. For best results, play the video when the speaker pauses about seven and a half minutes in. The story comes from a regular who usually brings tears of laughter to our evenings and to the podcast. This time, things are different. I'll let Barney Gribben explain. Some of you might be thinking, Barney doesn't normally have notes with him. It's not notes, it's a hanky. (laughs) This story happened seven years ago, and when I retell it, sometimes it triggers me off emotionally, so I've come prepared. Uh, Dementia visited our family seven years ago. It has been with us uh, a couple of years before that, but the bombshell Saturday was seven years ago. My father took a stroke for the second time. The ambulance arrived at the house, and as they were putting them into the back of the ambulance, my my mother was standing there saying, no, it can't be like this. This can't be how it ends. No, no, it can't end like this. And when they closed the doors of the ambulance, Mommy just folded over, as if somebody just sucked the life out of her. We walked her back into the house and set her down on a chair, and her eyes were just staring blankly into space, and she was grabbing at imaginary things in thin air, and we're thinking, what the hell has just happened? The GP came out and he admitted her into hospital with a severe case of dementia. Now, Mommy had been getting forgetful for a couple of years beforehand, but it was nothing we worried about. A member of the family always called in every day to see if everything was okay, and it always was. The GP said he'd heard of this happening before, but he had never met anyone it had happened to. Mommy had a mild case of dementia, 
And when the doors of the ambulance closed, that triggered something in her and full-blown dementia kicked in. A family meeting was called and we decided that uh, none of us were qualified or experienced to give the care that was needed. To give the best care and attention that the parents could have, we would have to get them into a care home. There's four care homes in our local town of Macherfelt, and we went round every one of them to find out which one was the best. In our naive stupidity, thinking it was like going to get the best hotel room. A lot of the care homes don't care for all types of dementia, and some of the care homes are already full. Brooklands could cater for the both types of dementia that my parents had, but the upstairs floor that Daddy was going to have to go to was currently full. He was checked out of the hospital and he went to a care home in Cookstown. We put his name on the waiting list for the upstairs in Brooklands. Mommy left hospital, she went to the ground floor in Brooklands. Two weeks later, I get a phone call from the manageress in Brooklands to say, a room has become available, we can take your father the next day. I said, fantastic. That's brilliant news. Thank you very much. It was only after I came off the phone I realised how insensitive it was. What the manageress was actually saying to me was, a room has become available because one of our residents died last night. And I said, fantastic. That's brilliant news. <laughs> the manageress said that it was best not to introduce daddy to mommy right away. Give him a few days first and let him get settled into his new surroundings. We all live close to Marherfeld, so he's getting plenty of visits. Daddy's dementia, his short-term memory was completely gone. I went in to visit him one time, and I met my brother Michael coming out from a visit, and we stopped at the door and had a bit of a chat. And when I was leaving then, I met Daddy's cousin Liam going in for a visit, and we had a bit of a chat. The next day, I met Liam again, and Liam says, I was in with your father yesterday, and he says to me, Now, Liam, I'm not complaining. But he says, we're reared nine of a family, and there's not one of them that ever come in and visit me. And Liam says, I'm glad I met you at the door. He says, I might have thought that was true. And I thought, when I'm in with Daddy again, I'll ask him about Liam and see, does he remember Liam? Liam was from the same area as Daddy, so he might. So when I went in, and now the thing that we had found out about dementia, you do not ask a direct question. Okay, their memory is gone, and you're putting them into an awkward spot where they feel they might have to tell a lie. So in a roundabout way, I'm asking about Liam. And I said, I was talking to Liam the other day, and he said he's going to come in and visit you sometime. And Daddy said, God, that'll be brilliant. I haven't seen Liam in a long time. So we've forgotten Liam as well. And then I noticed on the table there was a black baseball cap with a Cork County logo on it. It hadn't been there the day before. And a roundabout way, I'm asking about the cap again. And I said, that's a lovely cap. Now, I didn't see that the last day I was in. And Daddy said, Noel C. Duggan was in yesterday and he left that for me. Noel C. Duggan is a friend of my father's from Cork. So Daddy didn't remember Michael, then me, and then Liam, but he remembered Noel C. Duggan. Really? I went home that evening and I phoned Noel C. And sure enough, he had been in the day before and I had left a baseball cap. It was really weird. But at the end of a visit, Daddy would ask you, Mommy, not come in and visit me. It was heartbreaking. Then you went to visit Mommy downstairs, and it was a different type of visit. Mommy's dementia, she had gone back in time. The way she was talking, in her mind, I think she was in her early 20s. She didn't know I was her son. She told the nursing staff that I was just some nice wee boy that came in to visit her. But she was a great crack, and she was as cute as hell. My sister Brady went in to visit Mommy one time. Oh, by the way, Mommy remembered ones from her era, but she didn't remember us. My sister Brady was in visiting Mommy one time, and Mommy says, God, I'm very sore today, whatever's wrong. Was I born in 1932? 
And Brady said, you were indeed. And he says, oh, is it any wonder I'm sore? <laughs> we used to have a nosy neighbour that came to visit us a couple of times a year. Mommy didn't have much time for her. She was just there to spread gossip and get gossip. Myself and Brady were visiting Mommy in the care home and nosy neighbour came in. And Mommy got out of the chair and walked out through the patio doors. <laughs> she never would have done that. Brady followed Mommy out into the garden and I'm sitting with a nosy neighbour and she says to me, isn't it shocking about your Mommy, how she went downhill so quickly? Uh, and she knows nobody now at all. And Mommy was out in the garden with Brady and she says, do you think I'm going to sit in there and listen to that nonsense? <laughs> the television in the residents' bedrooms are always left on and I presume it was a source of comfort or companionship for them. But Mommy was back in her 1950s, the early 1950s. She didn't know what a television was or how it worked. And she came walking past it one day and she pointed out and she says to me, that boy won't stop talking. <laughs> she says, I've told him a couple of times to be quiet, but he just keeps talking. And there's something about him too. I don't like him. I thought that was quite funny. But looking back at it now, the boy that wouldn't stop talking, there was something about him that Mommy didn't like, was Philip Schofield. <laughs> she wasn't a bit soft. Sitting with Mommy one time and one of the male nurses came walking past and this boy was quite substantial. Now, we'll just say, like, he would have given Stephen Dolan a run for his money. <laughs> and as he came walking past, Mommy's eyes just followed him. And she says, would you look at the size of the arse in him? <laughs> and the true professional that he was, and he knows how dementia affects people, he just looked around at me and he winked and smiled and went on about his work. These carers were something else. But at the end of a visit, Mommy pointed to a photograph of Daddy and said, would that man not come in and visit me? It was heartbreaking. Mommy and Daddy were married for 58 years. From that bombshell Saturday until now in the care home, they haven't seen each other. In 58 years, the longest they've been apart for was four days. It has now been three weeks. And then this happened. Daddy passed away five years ago and Mommy knows nothing about it. Mommy's still in a care home. She's living, but she's not alive. When Mommy was at herself and she visited people in the care home, she would have come home and says, don't ever let that happen to me. What a sick, horrible disease dementia is. And I hope it never visits your family. Thank you very much. What can I say, Barney? Brilliant, as always. You had the black box in tears, including me. Thank you for giving us that insight into your life. It's very humbling. Damanine is always free and always will be, but I'd just like to say a big thank you to everyone who has donated via Patreon over the years. It helps cover our costs and we are truly grateful. Thanks too to everyone at the live events who has donated via Story Pig, our big China piggy bank. It's really appreciated and helps keep us going. Okay, here's our third and final story on this podcast, and he's a Tampa 9 regular, and before you listen, you might want to Google Mr. Ben, B-E-N-N, the 1970s British TV show for children. It'll help. Here's Paul Brady. A wave to the friendly Indian nurse at the reception. I couldn't remember her name, but I knew it was something upbeat, like Joy or Sunny. I'd given up trying to remember all the names. No sooner would I learn them and build a relationship 
Then they'd all be gone, like all the others, to different jobs, different old people's homes. How's the big girl this morning, I smiled. She's had her shower and a change and a good breakfast, she replied, remembering to hit all the points that she'd been warned to by the management when dealing with any of the Brady Mafia. I smiled and nodded, didn't break straight. I rounded the corner and stopped at number three, Rosie's door. I rested my head against it for a second and reached for the handle. One slow deep breath, eyes closed, then opened and smiling. Hello Joseph, my older brother. She beamed. Sure it's fine and well you're looking this morning. I couldn't help but smile. You can see why they loved her here. Immobile, grateful, gracious. Almost always pleasant. I'm dead on. Jesus, mummy, the heat in here. Will they open the window a wee bit? She says, yes, love, she says. I closed the windows when I was out from a walk earlier on. My eyes flicked down to the mottled, lifeless leg, leaning awkwardly against her other leg, like it's drunken mate in a night out. I'll see where this went for the crack. So did you meet anybody interesting on your walk? Do you remember Mrs. Glennon from Tullymore? Of course, I said. Of course I remembered our lovely, rotund neighbour, who would bring us sweets back from her holidays when we were kids. A nice old lady. I hadn't thought about her in years. She died when I was in my early teens, and I was 50 at this point. She was telling me that Mrs O'Neill hasn't been great. I'm sure she wasn't. She'd been dead for 40 years too. <laughs> I'll maybe take a wee run down and see her later on, see how she is. No worries, I said without a pause. Sure, I'll drive you. Are you driving now? My God, you're all grown up so fast. I often wondered what she was seeing at these points, or if me driving at 50 was such a shock, <laughs> just how incompetent she really thought I was. I let it slide. Were you walking long? You seem a bit tired, I continued. Walking? Me? A slight tone change. Sure, I haven't been out of this flaming room in weeks. This place is like a prison. How did you get here? Do you, does anybody else know I'm here? Of course they know. They'll all be in at some point today. I'm just here first. How's your leg feeling today? Says it's a bit tender. Tone started to soften again. I think I overdid it on my walk this morning. Tell your daddy to bring some of my gel when he's coming later on. I'll put it on my knees. Where is he today anyway? Working, I suppose. I sure you know what he's like. He never stops. Until he did. Terminally. A decade previously. Initially, I had taken her to his grave a few times, but she got herself too upset. And long after, she'd forgotten why. The upset would continue for days. I think he's got himself a fancy woman, you know. Oh, Jesus, mommy, don't be silly. I says, no man with any sense gets himself two women. <laughs> Since it's all we can do to deal with one is at a time. She rolled her eyes and laughed. I needed a diversion, a reset. Time for a Mr. Bain. I'm just going to nip the loo for a second. I stepped inside the ensuite, closed the door behind me, and turned on the taps. I often wondered why the old Mr. Ben cartoon had attached itself to my memory so tightly. I'd recently found out that there were only 14 episodes of it ever made. I could have sworn there were more, but it made no sense that it would have connected to it so much. As a young boy growing up in a ravaged corner of war-torn Belfast, there were armed troops patrolling outside. Yet, I adoringly watched a quaint, 
mild-mannered Englishman in a bowler hat, going to a fancy dress shop and enjoying 14 mild-mannered adventures. A psychiatrist would have a fucking field day. (laughs) That should be long enough now. I put my head against the back of the bathroom door and reached for the handle. One slow, deep breath, eyes closed, open and smile. Ah, Paul, have you been here long? I'm just back. They took us all to the cinema. I'm just in the door in front of you, I says. I had to run to the toilet. I tested the waters. Has anybody been in yet today? I haven't seen a sinner in weeks. You're the first that's even called. Maybe they don't even have the new address yet. She was dialing up the Catholic guilt. I moved the counter. Sure, my kids were here yesterday. I pointed to the yellow box. They brought your favourite licorice, sure. Ah, yes, of course, she manoeuvred. Those kids are great. How is everyone at home? Despite all the degeneration that had happened in the intervening years, she never really forgot those original generic questions. She learned them in the early days to disguise what was happening. Ask about family, not about individuals. Ask about work, not about jobs. No specifics. Talk about how terrible the news was, knowing that there would usually be some terrible news somewhere. Like a second-rate fairground fortune teller, spinning enough vague threads of generic truth to keep you interested. And here I was, the tall, dark stranger, going along for the raid. I opened a box of licorice and her eyes lit up. Did you bring those with you? Of course I did. I said, if you behave yourself, you'll get one this time. She laughed and slapped my leg playfully. Martin Brady, my younger brother. You're a desperate case. Make sure and leave one of those for your daddy. He loves a bit of licorice. Did you hear from him today? Must have got caught up at work. I can't get any I can't wait any longer. I'll have to get back to the kids. What kids? It was out before I realized it said it. What do you mean, what kids? Our kids. I've already left them there too long, waiting here my wages. Stupid bastard. Stupid mistake. Okay, I says, with the calm, reassuring tone of my da. Give me a second to run to the toilet. We'll just head straight on, okay? She breathed deeply to herself. Okay, she said, I'm just worried about the kids, that's all. I know, love, don't worry. We'll just head on and come back for your wages tomorrow. I closed the door of the ensuite, turned on the taps and flushed the toilet. I glared at myself in the mirror. You stupid bastard. I waited for the cistern to refill and flush the toilet again, just like my dad. One at the start, one at the end. One more Ben, Mr. Ben, then it was time to go. I could feel the darkness closing in. I could feel the mood settling on the back of my neck. I put my head against the back of the bathroom door, reached for the handle. One slow deep breath, eyes closed, opening smile. Michael, thank God you're here. Nice drama. He's my other brother. The youngest. She sounded worried. Sit down for a second, will you? Yeah, mommy, sure, what's up? I'm going to ask you a question. 
and I want you to tell me the truth. She rested her knotted hands on mine. Sure, Mommy, of course. What is it? Is your daddy dead? Every fucking day. At least Mick was getting it today. Yes, Mommy, of course. Ten years ago. My God. Hearing it for the first time again. I can't believe I've forgotten. I keep waiting on to come through that door. And I said, if he comes through that door, I'm going out through that fucking window. <laughs> she rolled her eyes. And Mommy, your Mommy, Granny Mason, is she gone too? Oh, Jesus, Mommy. A long time now. She, you're 85. What age would Granny be? She'd be in the Irish news as the oldest woman in the country. I'm 85! <laughs> she gasped. My God, what age are you now? I calculated quickly as Mick. I don't know why. He's always better at maths than I was. I'm 45 and I'm the baby. Sure, three of your kids are pensioners now. My God, she whispered. My memory's getting terrible these days. Wait that I tell your father. Have you heard from him today? Not yet. I'm sure he won't be long, though. Listen, I'm going to have to bait on here. The Duchess will be shouting if I'm late again for picking her up. I'll see you tomorrow. Will you been tomorrow, she says. Nice as I, sure, of course. She says, you drive carefully. Yes, mother. I rolled my eyes in fake teenage anguish. She laughed. I pulled the door closed behind me. I nodded goodbye to Happy Joy Sunny on my way out. I looked back through the window as I reached the car and Rosie was waving. I waved back and smiled. I couldn't believe there was only 14 Mr. Ben episodes ever made. I looked that up when I got home. I was supposed to do it yesterday, forgot all about it. My memory's getting desperate these days. <laughs> Paul, thank you so much for that amazing story. The mix of humour and pain. Just brilliant. And just before he started his story, Paul joked that he had sat with Barney that night for a laugh, not realising what Barney's story was about. It was a very special night indeed. And that's it for this podcast. Check out all the 10 by 9 upcoming dates on our website, including our big Christmas night, and be sure to keep in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. It'd be really helpful if you could give the podcast a review or rating at Apple Podcasts because it helps get us noticed. Ronald Crankster did from Australia. He described 10 by 9 Podcast as a salve for a hurting heart, saying the stories were told with self-awareness, reflection, and humour. Thanks, Ronald. You're not wrong. Thanks to everyone who makes 10 by 9 happen. The fabulous Leanne McConville, Margaret McClory, and Chris O'Donoghue. 10 by 9 wouldn't be there without them. Thanks, of course, to the beautiful people of the Black Box and our amazing, supportive audience. And all our brilliant storytellers who continually offer us wonderful glimpses into their souls. We are truly grateful. But thanks especially on this occasion to Paul Whittington, Barney Gribben and Paul Brady. I'm Paul Dorn and I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>